Welcome to the Connect FCS Ed Podcast, where we talk about family and consumer sciences education. Each episode is geared to support, recruit, and retain the professional FCS educator. I am your host, Barbara Scully, and I want to boldly celebrate with you today, families and careers. Hi, and welcome back to the Connect FCS Ed. My name is Barb Scully, and thank you so much for joining today. Without your viewership, this podcast wouldn't be possible. So today with me, I have Dr. Kyle Robertson, Assistant Professor at Texas Tech University. His research focuses on the educational programming within prisons and jails and the well-being of families of the incarcerated. So Dr. Robertson, thank you so much for taking the time joining me. And yes, we're excited to hear about you. I'm super happy to be here, Barbara. Thank you for the invite. Absolutely. So, well, you and I, we've chatted in the past before, and you shared with me your happenstance story. And that has just struck and stuck with me for, I think, since the beginning. So please, could you share your happenstance? Well, sure. It's it's kind of a, a, a long story. I'll give you the abridged version as we go through our discussion here. But uh, planned happenstance is what the theoretical framework of my dissertation. And basically what I did was I used that theory from John Crumboltz to kind of look at my career and how it affected my decisions and how I interact with the inmates and such. And so in that research, you know, I looked at a lot of the things that led me to where I am in family and consumer sciences today. And it really started back in high school when I was trying out for the baseball team. And when I didn't make the team, I had a a very caring coach that saw something in me and he took me over to the athletic trainer and introduced me to him. And that meeting there led to me having an interest in the medical aspect of dealing with people, which led to the idea of firefighting. And so this is where I'm going to kind of shorten the story. But the firefighting led to me joining the Army, and the Army led to me finding the military police corps. I went from firefighting to the military police. While I was in the military police, I met somebody who worked in corrections. And so as a reservist, I was looking for full-time work while I was doing my reserve time. And when I applied for the Bureau of Prisons, I got hired as a correctional officer. And once I got hired as a correctional officer, I met another guy who was in the reserves. This is all part of the happenstance part of it. None of this was planned, you know. So all these people came into my life, made an impact, gave me an opportunity. But he led me into drill sergeant school. So I went to drill sergeant school in the reserves while serving as a correctional officer. And so in that little bit, I found out that what I really enjoyed doing was training and teaching. And so working about 10 years into the prison system, I realized that what I wanted to do was be a more positive influence on the inmate population. So I went to my warden. He knew I was a drill sergeant. He knew I was a staff trainer for the Bureau. And when I told him I wanted to get into the education of the inmates, he told me, well, that's kind of a step backwards for you. I said, well, I'm willing to do it. I'm working on a a degree in adult education. And so I kind of really want to do a more positive interaction with the inmates versus being the, the cop on the compound, constantly correcting them. I want to do something that was a little more helpful. Well, he saw that and took me up on it, and I moved over into the education department of the prison. And from there, I 
started looking around at what classes we offered. And I realized real fast that not only did the inmates need their GED, but they needed some life skills. And a lot of the classes we taught did that. So I thought, well, if I want to get certified as a teacher, what do I need to get certified in that I can be most helpful to the inmate population? And just through a random Google search one day while doing some research to figure out where I would work on getting teacher certification, I happened on to the Great Plains Idea Program, which I know you're a graduate of yourself, right? Yes, I am. (laughs) Yeah, all right. So we're alumni together out of that program. So in my Google search, I basically typed in life skills teacher certification. Uh, I don't even remember exactly what I typed into the Google search, but up pop Great Plains Idea Program, Family and Consumer Sciences teacher certification. So I started researching that and found out that's the fit for me. So I enrolled through South Dakota State University and worked on a master's degree that came with teacher certification. And so that's what started my career in family and consumer sciences. Before that, I had no idea what it was. I took one home at class back in high school in 1986, maybe. It's going to be an easy A. And it was all girl class. I'm the only guy there. So I thought, you know, I had the pick of the litter. You know, just kind of one of those mentalities and soon realized that the easy A was not part of the deal and it didn't lead to any girlfriends or anything like that. And so but that was my introduction to home ec back then. But uh, knowing what I know now, I realized it was a, it was the perfect fit for me for what I wanted to do with the inmate population. And so that's how I came to find Family and Consumer Sciences. Because you thought it was going to be that easy A. I currently have students like that right now in my classes, and it's proving to be a little bit more of a challenge than it should be, but we'll work through it, right? Absolutely, because that's certainly not the case, and you know, teaching family and consumer sciences courses at the college level is certainly not an easy A. There's a lot of work that's involved. And it's a challenge because there is a lot of content that we have to deal with, you know, not only the pedagogy aspect of it, but the content. And it's so diverse that, you know, we have to really be on our game, especially with our teacher prep program so they can be well well prepared for, you know, their first year as a teacher. I absolutely agree with that because I know being a newer teacher and then stepping foot into the classroom, you're not fully prepared for that teaching, the new teaching styles, or knowing even what to expect. Because every day you're being thrown something, a curveball, a challenge. And that's where bringing those 21st century life skills and standards into play by being able to make everything relevant. Right. You say that, and it's kind of a neat thing to think about, you know, the methods that we have to teach. And we're not only teaching how to teach the content. We also have to be, have that human connection with our students. Mm -hmm. And I think the family and consumer sciences classroom is one of those places where students can feel like they can do that with their instructor. And so you're not only teaching how to teach the different content, you're also learning as a teacher how to connect with those students and to deal with all the different societal issues they're dealing with. And, you know, we're, coming out of this COVID pandemic thing and trying to deal with what students have had to deal with and and being empathetic to their needs has been a real challenge for a lot of teachers. And I, you know, I I just know that 
we've done a great job at it in our field. You know, I follow a few people on Twitter, you being one of them, and, and you've seen some of the challenges, but I'm telling you, we rose to the occasion, I think. I think every FCS teacher out there deserves a round of applause for what they've accomplished with online education, transitioning from online to face-to-face. They've just done a fantastic job out there. And so just a round of applause for all of them. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree that we, as FCS in the CTE realm, I want to say we have to encompass all of CTE because we have really tapped in and honed into our professionalism skills of our background contents of and our life experiences to be able to project forward to be able to help our students navigate. So really and truly, FCS, yes, it's been a challenge trying to convert all of our hands-on labs and and everything to virtual and then <laughs> and then have to reconvert to hybrid, modify, and then come back to full face-to-face transition. It's been a challenge, but I want to say. And sometimes back and forth, back and forth. Back and forth, yeah. There's In and out of the classroom based off the conditions of the week. Yeah, or having students going all of a sudden going, you know, we're going to go back to distance learning because we don't want to be coming to school every day. Okay. And then having to pivot how to, you know, help those students. It's been mentally exhausting. (laughs) I imagine. (laughs) Well, I'm curious. So you and I, we've chatted before and you've mentioned how you believe family consumer sciences, education, and we as teachers are that perfect fit to being able to go into the prison system to help educate the incarcerated. So can you share why you think that? Well, because as family consumer sciences educators, we have a great skill set. Not only do we work with content literacy, not only do we work with math in all of our content, the reading aspect of it. When you're dealing with the incarcerated inmate, a lot of them are in need of their GED. And at least in the Federal Bureau of Prisons system, the only requirement is that you have a teaching certificate. So as long as you're a certified teacher, you can get hired in. Well, when you look at all the content and coursework that we do with the inmates, from CTE to the, the GED required courses, with our, which are reading, language, arts, science, social studies, and math. So if you can work, help inmates with those basic four content areas to earn their GED, you also have the skill sets that are necessary for our CTE program and our life skills programs. And if you look at one teacher credential that encompasses doing all that, it's family and consumer sciences teachers. And so if our prisons would recruit family and consumer sciences teachers to work there in the education department, I think they get bang for the buck. So it's not only are we the perfect fit, it's the perfect balance for the taxpayer as well, because they don't have to hire an English-specific teacher or a math teacher. If they're willing to hire, and not to knock any discipline out there, but if they're willing to hire a PE teacher to teach reading language arts, math, science, and social studies, then and, and then also not have the credentials to teach the life skills or any CTE courses, then why would you not hire family consumer sciences as your first choice? Because we can teach all of that because it's all in our content. And we're, we're given the pedagogy classes 
we have all the content from all the different things that we teach in family and consumer sciences. I mean, and a big training thing in the prisons is culinary. And so just those culinary skills, because the restaurant industry is inmate friendly. So they hire a lot of ex-felons to work in the kitchens and as cooks and helping. So talk about a skill set that can get a guy a job right out of prison. It may not be the best paying job right away, but at least they're working and contributing. And then from there, they can move up and look for other opportunities once they've kind of proven themselves in the job market a little bit. So I just think, and I wrote an article, it was published in Corrections Today magazine a few years ago about encouraging wardens and human resources department to seek out family and consumer sciences teachers to hire into their prison systems. And then if you look at the broader picture, you know, we have a food service industry inside the prison. So if you think of a prison as a small city, Everything you need in a small city, they need in the prison. So you have the, the medical aspect of it. You have the kitchen aspect of it and the cook. And it's an industrial kitchen in most of those places. So talk about somewhere where somebody fits well to somebody with a culinary specialty in family and consumer science is working there. And then you have the, the career counselors in there and all those kind of things that just really tie into a lot of our content. It really does. And it's rehabilitating uh, individuals and giving them a purpose. Mm -hmm. The the only drawback that, you know, that I've heard from some of my peers is, you know, we obviously are trying to fill our pipelines in our high school. Mm -hmm. And so why do we want to pull and put those people in a prison? Well, as we know, people get burned out from teaching high school and kids and the administration, those kind of things. And they might be looking for other avenues, but they don't have to abandon teaching family consumer sciences. They can go into a, another whole career field that deals with law enforcement, but using their teaching credentials to still help out and contribute in that way. They don't have to completely change careers just because they want to leave secondary education or something like that. But it, it definitely takes a certain type of person to want to go work in a prison and a certain person to stay there once they figure out how it works. But you want to talk about a rewarding experience. And I'll, I'll share one of my stories with you real quick. So at FIU, where I'm the president-elect, our, our national theme for the next couple of years is inspiring others through FCS storytelling. And so if we could all share our stories, we would see what an impact we have. And one of the stories I'd like to share is I had this one student who, when he first came to the prison, he needed his GED. And he was getting in a little bit of trouble here and there in the prison. And I just kind of saw him as a young kid who hadn't really figured out that he's an adult yet and was kind of making some poor choices. Obviously, he ended up in prison. But we just had a talk one day while he was a GED student. I said, you know, you got your whole life ahead of you. And it starts with a decision you make right now. How serious are you going to take this GED? And I must have connected with him because he started taking his GED seriously and he earned his GED. Well, the next thing he wanted to do was earn an associate degree because we worked with Mount Marty College. We had an associate degree program within the prison, and he ended up getting into that program. And fast forward two or three years, it took it takes him on average about three years to earn a two-year degree because we can't offer every course every semester inside the prison. Well, the neat part about this story is he graduated, but when he came to my office to get his diploma, which is kind of this routine I had, I'd call him in because they would go over to the college and walk through commencement like every other graduate. We'd take him out on a furlough and escort them over there, which was kind of neat for the them and their families. But, you know, of course, diplomas always show up later. 
And so I always got mailed to the prison. They came to me and I would set them in my office and I would page them up to my office because I liked presenting them to them. It's kind of the highlight of my job, really. And this one student came in and as he walked in, I flipped that thing open with this nice gold seal. And I said, here you go. And, you know, he, he got teary eyed and, and emotional about it. And what he said to me that stuck, it was the biggest compliment I've ever received from any job. He says, at the time, it was Mr. Robertson. He goes, Mr. Robertson, please don't ever quit your job. And right there, I was just like, I've made an impact. I've made a difference. And it's all because I chose to get a family and sciences degree and come work in the, in the prison system and in the education department. And I knew right then that I had a lifelong mission of helping inmates better themselves so they can give back to society, reintroduce, reconnect with their families. But when he told me to never quit my job, which I haven't in one regard, I'm still doing the job, just not inside of prison. And I'm wanting to still make those contributions. But I think we all need to share our success stories like that to get the word out. And we're at a time in our industry where storytelling is being pushed. You know, and I used autoethnography for my dissertation, which is a form of storytelling. And then you have uh, the book that just came out by Danielle. That's basically telling all of our stories as well with the secret history of home economics. Uh, but we need to hear the current stories. And so I just kind of want to encourage other practitioners to write down their stories and record them. And anytime they get a chance to tell them, express those so that people can see the impact we really have. Twitter is great. It puts a lot of stories out there, but it needs to be in print and it needs to be widespread, I think. I enjoyed chatting with Danielle and I love the fact that she was able to, she, her book was all about the history of home economics, but you're absolutely right when it comes to, you know, we need to start thinking forward, you know, and Mm -hmm. paving a new pathway for what family consumer sciences is and how it's impacting our own lives, but our students and the students' families. I think all of that is so, so important because we're trying to change the name from home economics. We have that stigma to family consumer sciences to encompass all of the body of knowledge and you know what decision-making <laughs> across the lifespan. So absolutely. And I love the hashtag FCS storytelling. I, I love that. And I've been trying really hard, actually, in all in previous episodes and continuing on to always be including that, that FCS storytelling, because I know it makes an impact. And just today in one of I heard back from another uh, gal who I interviewed she, for her podcast episode, she was talking about her FCS wish list as as she is moving out of state and what she's hoping to gain in her next employment. And somebody listened to her, her episode and then immediately contacted her to say, please apply. (laughs) So absolutely sharing our stories and what we want. It's all part of networking and and in bettering our community of FCS educators. So I, I and, love- and it can't go without saying your podcast is helping do that because I've listened to probably 90% of your podcast 
And you're sharing those stories through the podcast. I, I think it's just a wonderful thing that you've done. And didn't wasn't this part of your... It was my master's degree uh, project. Yeah. What is that called? I can't remember. It's been a long... Like, <laughs> it was yeah. like your major project. It was your culminating experience. Yes. Right. It was my culminating project in trying to figure out a way to better the family and consumer sciences community as a whole. And it was, you know, just kind of happenstance where a friend said she'd gone dark on social media. And then all of a sudden she did an announcement that she was, she had released the podcast. And it was from there, I heard her first episode. And that is what sparked the catalyst for me to start this podcast journey. So yeah, we all benefit from one another in certain ways. You know, we somebody's always laying down a nugget of good advice. And when it comes to the prisons and incarcerations for family consumer sciences, I know I've heard in on threads in on the Facebook groups and everything where there are people who they want to go out and do work in prisons to do something like what you're sharing, but they don't know how. Can right. you can you talk about how can listeners who want to take this same journey as you do that? Well, if, if they're wanting to volunteer in the prison, I'll tell you that what they got to do is reach out to the education department, the religious services department. And the psychology department. Those are the three areas where they encourage volunteers to come in and work with them. So depending on what their specialty is or what they're wanting to teach, they're obviously always looking for somebody that's wanting to volunteer their time because that's a savings to you and I as taxpayers. If they get somebody that wants to come in and teach a nutrition class, you know, so the inmates get to learn something about, you know, healthy eating habits and, and lifestyles. And if they can do that tax-free, you know, meaning they're not paying a salary to that, that's a benefit to you and I and to the inmate because they get the knowledge. It didn't cost taxpayers anything. And so most institutions are always willing to work with something like that. The thing that holds people up is the background check because nobody can enter a jail or a prison without some type of clearance. And so if you can't make that clearance or aren't willing to give up the information to do that, that's what holds a lot of them up. And so you have to be open-minded and realize that they're not gathering the intel on you in order to, you know, Big Brother is watching. They're making sure that you're not somebody trying to infiltrate the prison for a negative reason. And the only reason why all those things happen with the background checks is because that has happened. Obviously, almost every policy is put into place for a reason because something has happened to require it. So we have, you know, prisons have been infiltrated by people wanting to go in there and recruit for whether it's drug dealing within the prison or what, but they come under the guise of, hey, I want to come in and teach the inmate something, or I want to, you know, help with religious services. And then they're spreading their message that's not necessarily aligned with a good cause. And so if people aren't willing to come in and have that background check done, it just holds everything up. And there are tons of good people out there that would qualify and get their background check to do that. But what happens is, is they come in and they realize how much paperwork is involved to do that. And it kind of turns them off. 
And so like, oh, I didn't realize it was going to be this hard to do because it's a process. And that process takes, it can take anywhere from a few weeks to even a few months to get that cleared to have you come in to teach or to, you know, assist with religious services or assist with psychology and AA meetings or something along that. So it takes time. And so people have to be patient and have that drive to want to come and go through the process to get in. So just if they know that up front, it's easier than knocking on the door and being told, okay, yeah, we would love to have you. It'll be six months before we get you in. If they know that going to the door before they knock, it's a little easier to take that, hey, this is something I want to do. I want to help out, but it's going to take a while to make it happen. And a lot of people get turned off right away because they don't realize that going in that it's a process to be able to enter those gates every day or once a week or however often you're going to come in. And so knowing that ahead of time will help with the recruiting of people if they know that it's a process to get through. You know, everybody loves the volunteer, but they have to realize that we're trying to protect not only the inmates, but we're protecting the staff there too. So we want to make sure everybody that came through the door is coming through for the right reason. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. So how about if, for those teachers who, you, yes, you were talking about those teachers who have been burnt out or they are wanting to kind of segue and become kind of an entrepreneur. How could this become a paid gig or paid employment opportunity? Well, there's a couple of different ways they can do that. They can actually hire into the prison system as a teacher. A lot of institutions hire straight from the teaching ranks and you don't have to come in and get your foot in the door as a correctional officer first. But, you know, because it's a credential position, they need somebody that can come right in to do that. And so you can hire in that way. As a paid volunteer, you can come in because it depends on the the institution and what they're looking for. So you have to kind of watch these different websites where they're looking for instructors and they they put them out as bids and so if they're wanting a block of instruction on a certain area or let's say a culinary class it's part-time they don't have a full-blown program but they want somebody to come in and work with their the guys that work in the kitchen and help them with you know some new baking skills or something like that they'll put out these bids and that's something you could do part-time maybe around a teaching schedule depending on you know what your schedule is like and they can do that and teach that way. And then there's also the aspect of developing the curriculum for that. There are companies out there that that you can work for that develop curriculum for the prison. And so that's another aspect that you could consider. I never even thought of that because I'm just thinking, oh, well, gosh, I've over this past year with developing and designing and redesigning (laughs) my curriculum and everything like, oh, I have stuff canned that are ready to go. But and but I also know that's geared for high school. So Mm -hmm. it makes me curious. My inquisitive mind is now thinking, oh, what is the what would the educational uh, system be able to come up with that I don't already. Well, and that's part of the problem is a lot of the curriculum that is designed is geared towards high school kids. Mm-hmm. And you're taking high school curriculum and trying to apply that to the average inmate age of about 35. It doesn't work. It you're doesn't dealing work. with an adolescent mind and an adult mind, and they learn differently. And so a lot of the curriculum that's out there that the, the institutions are, when I say institutions, I mean prisons, 
are using is not right for their target audience. And so it's having to be adapted. And that's where when I hired into the education department and started taking family and consumer sciences courses, and I realized this isn't working. There's better ways to do this. And so I started revamping some of our programs in the prisons that I worked in to be more geared towards an adult learner. And so, and it made a big difference in how. Take our GED program, for instance, it's geared towards teaching, you know, those core concepts in science, math, social studies, and reading language arts. But we were teaching it to them like they were high school kids. And so one of the things we did was we allowed the students to pick what subject they wanted to work on because they had to report to class for 50 minutes a day, every day. So why not let them pick what they want to work on? So if they do that, then they have more control, uh, more autonomy on what they want to do, which means they're going to be a better learner because we're not forcing them to learn math. today. And as an adult, you kind of want to have a say in what happens with your day. And now you multiply that by the fact that you're an inmate in a prison. You're being told where to go, what to eat, when you can go to the bathroom. All day long, people are telling you what to do. But yet they get to our classroom and they get to pick what they want to study. Uh, today, I feel like doing math. Okay, do math. You know, today I want to do social studies. Okay, do social studies and let them work at their own pace on what they want to do. And so that made a huge difference in the success rate of our students taking the individual tests versus forcing them all to do math. And half of them saying, I don't, I'm not good at math. I don't want to do math. Well, if you let them pass the things that they felt good at first, then they'll realize, oh, I'm down to just math. Oh, I can do this. And so it changed their motivation level to pass what they thought they were not good at because they've now conquered the other three tests. And we let them do that at their own pace. And so it, it changed our GED hash rate, you know, while I was working at that prison by allowing them that autonomy. Let me think of like Dave Ramsey's debt snowball <laughs> with that mentality and the that motivation right there. Let them tackle areas of what they they feel comfortable with and what they know that they're good at to be able to start seeing those other areas become not such big mountains. Yeah, and and math is definitely the hardest one for them. And you know, it's hard for me that's too. the last one you got to pass. You know, your motivation looks like I can earn my GD. All I got to do is pass math. You know, and you can just see it in their eyes. And and when they come in to sit down, this is all I got to do. This is all I got to do. And you can see it in their in the way they react. And so another one of the things that I like doing with making that human connection with them while maintaining that professional boundary was as they pass those tests, I would fist bump the inmates, you know, because that's kind of a it's a touchy spot about that interaction with the inmates, you know. And but if you're doing it in an educational setting and you're not taking it, you know, out of context, like you pass the test, certainly somebody deserves a congratulatory remark. Absolutely. And if you're willing to shake somebody's hand to say congratulations, you know, what's a fist bump? If that's the way they interact and they, they think that's cool that you recognize that. And so that would help with the motivation as well, making that, you know, that tiny bit of a human connection that you, you know, you're showing that that you care that they were successful made it makes a big difference. And you want to talk about people who care about the success of their students, not to say that science teachers and English teachers don't care, but I think there's just a different type of caring that you get from family consumer sciences teachers, because we're looking at the entire body mm-hmm. of the student, you know, from every aspect. And when you do that, I think it just develops, you know, a better connection with our students uh, when you're doing that. 
you know, not every English teacher has taken students out on FCCLA, you know, trips and getting to know their students in that regard. You know, so I think family consumer sciences, it's just a perfect fit inside the prison system for, for people that care about people because we're the people-centered science, thrilled with the idea of helping somebody be successful and connect with their family. And if you can help an inmate be successful inside the prison, then that's going to only make them more successful outside the prison, uh, taking those skills out there with their family and their community. Now I'm I'm motivated to see if I can look up on any of these. Uh, well, actually, do you have any websites that you can recommend for one myself, but maybe for others who would just kind of spear them into the right direction? For uh, I don't, I wouldn't have like a website in general. The best thing to do is look up the local jails or prisons in your area. Okay. And usually they have an executive mailbox that you can write to uh, because you can't just write directly in. That's one of the security procedures is not everybody has access to all staff's email inside the prison. So there's usually an executive email on a web page of a jail or a prison. And you write to that one first and just tell them that, hey, I'm a educator in the such and such independent school district, and I'm looking to volunteer inside the prison, and these are the skill sets I can bring to the table and would love to share with your, your inmate population. And they will, in general, forward that to the education person or the psychology person or the, or, you know, the drug treatment program specialist, you know, depending on what you're offering. And then that person will reach out to you and say, okay, so what exactly are you wanting to do? And the conversation gets started that way. That way we're reaching out to you and creating that link for security purposes. And so that would be the best way to go do that. And there are, and I I don't know them off the top of my head, but there are a ton of prison advocacy groups out there. The only thing I say there is be cautious because a lot of them are doing great things, but there are also some that all correctional people are the bad guys. And we're all evil and Hollywood portrays that about us, that we're all on the take and that we all do use the inmates for unjust labor and this and that. And so you don't want to get in with the wrong group that has a different agenda of helping the inmates, you know, where they're making the correctional officer who's just doing his job look bad or the correctional workers look bad. And unfortunately, there are some of those out there as well, but there are also tons of them out there that are doing great things for inmate advocacy and helping them reconnect with re-entry and finding jobs and stuff like that. So I would just caution you to do your research before getting too involved with one specific group. Well, no, that's perfect. You just kind of gave, you gave us the how, the when, the how, and that's perfect. For the listeners, look up your local prisons. And if this is an avenue that you're interested in, Find the executive email to then be able to write out what your uh, your job description per se is and where you currently work. And then, you know, just kind of let the powers that be then guide. Sure. Well, and another way that, you know, our profession can help out through the classroom are book drives, clothing drives, food drives, because in general, when you look at the research, inmate family members are on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. So their kids don't have as many books at home. They have food insecurities. And obviously, you know, when you deal with those kind of insecurities, you're also dealing with not having 
current clothes to wear to, to school so they blend in with the other kids. They don't look like they're lacking in financial resources. And so if you can donate clothes to these families, and that's where you find those good advocacy groups out there that can help you facilitate getting these things to them. And that's another way that, that we can help out with class projects and looking at uh, classroom projects that you know we want to work outside the classroom on. So that would be another way that we can help out too. Would you say that could be a FCCLA event? I, I would think that it could be worked in there in a STAR event somehow, come up with a project to help with a food drive or a book drive or something to get those materials to a needy family that has a, a, a parent incarcerated. Because whether it's the male, which you know most of them are, it's the male that's incarcerated, but there are females that are incarcerated where the father's having to parent and do things. And so that puts strain on both sides. But in general, it's the mother that's a single mom now because dad's in prison. And, you know, there's all kinds of services that they're needing. And unfortunately, our system has, when they study these things, they're looking at how, what, what works for the inmate. And they, they totally disregard, and I don't say totally disregard, there's not a lot of thought when they're sentencing and putting people away, like, how's this going to affect the family? What services do we have in place to help family transition to dad being put away for 20 years? You know, and, and how do we help keep those family connections? There's not a lot of research on that. And there's not a lot of services out there that target that. And that's kind of where I think family consumer sciences, if we're not working inside the prison, that we can do it outside the prison, taking care of those families and looking out for their well-being and helping them stay connected uh, with the incarcerated parent. Uh, even if you're not dealing with a child in the picture, a spouse dealing with a husband, think about our soldiers and the, the spouses that somebody's deployed. You know, there's a lot of similarities there, even though one made a bad choice and went to prison, but one made a choice that put him in harm's way, but they're still separated. And one's worried about the other one with a great deal of distance in between them, distance and time. And so helping them deal with that is another avenue of what we can help, you know, save those family relationships and, and help their life be better than what it is by the services we could provide. A completely different spin on how I I think of things, just mentioning the differences, but yet the the similarities with the incarcerated versus the deployed. Honestly, I've never even considered from the incarcerated side, the the supports. I know there are numerous supports for the deployed families, but I never even considered what kind of support system there are in place for the the families of the incarcerated. So I, I have to say thank you for bringing that to my attention because that is something I've, I've never even considered. It's eye-opening. not. There are none to speak of that are big from a state or a national standard that worry about the family after we incarcerate the individual. You know, it's all about the penal system. You did something wrong. You went through the court system. You got sentenced. You went off to prison. But what about the family? There's no support system out there for that or even thought of in general for them. And so that's something that we need to advocate for through our legislatures. And so that's a project right there is writing legislators say, what are we doing for the families of the incarcerated? Those kids are at higher risk for 
intergenerational criminal activity? What can we do to help limit that now that dad's away and there's no father figure? I mean, you can just look at the, the studies and, and see that that's a problem. So, but that's where we can step in and, and we have the ability and the resources to, you know, create projects that help address that in our communities. And even in tech, teacher preparation programs, making sure teachers are aware that there's kids in their classroom that have an incarcerated parent. Mm-hmm. And how do, you, how do you work with them differently than you do students that have both parents at home or even single parents at home, but nobody's in prison, but they have the support of mom and dad that may be in different households. Being a teacher, I'm able to see certain things on my end in the computer system if, let's say, a student is migrant or if a student is under the McKinney-Vento or, gosh, what another one could be mom or dad has legal custody. and But you'd mm-hmm. never, I, in my years of experience, I've never seen any notation of whether a family, if a student has a mom or a dad within the system. With you being a part of the prison system, are there certain asterisks or notations to notify teachers if something like that? No? No. In general, we won't know about it only through conversations with the student or the parent. Because normally what happens is a child's acting out and there's a reason behind that because some traumatic event, dad got sent away to prison or something. And so you end up talking to the other parent like, well, I'm struggling because, and that's if they're willing to tell you because there's stigma related to that. Mm-hmm. And so, and the child's embarrassed. They don't want to tell people that dad's in prison or jail. And so it's one of those things that's hard to find out, but you know that they're there because one in every 10 kids, I think, don't absolutely quote that stat, but about one in 10 kids have a parent that are incarcerated. And the numbers are just outstanding when you when you look at the figures. I wish I had them right in front of me. But when you look at the figures of how many parents or kids that have an incarcerated parent, you know they're in our classroom. And so if there's a reason why something's not happening the way it should, doing that little bit of extra connecting with that student to to see, not necessarily asking the direct question, but finding out what could be happening at home. And we're trying to do that anyway. But you just might find out that the reason is they have an incarcerated parent. And then you know that, okay, this child might need a little bit of extra, you know, attention or empathy in this regard because of that situation. Yeah. Well, empathy goes a long, long way. And and it really does help build that relationship that it doesn't in building that relationship it doesn't it's not going to be a short relationship you're making an impact that's going to impact the life of that individual and even though it has nothing to do with the prison system or anything like this uh fcs storytelling (laughs) is that just very recently one of my students very unexpectedly his uh, stepmom passed away. She was a young woman and it, it was just, it was heartbreaking. And the student emailed me, it was like one o'clock in the morning. And uh, yes, I was up <laughs> and I see it. I see the email come across and, and I, I read it and it just said, hey, I didn't know who to tell, but 
my mom and he referred to her as as mom but also a stepmom my my mom just passed away she passed away this morning and I was like oh my gosh you know immediately you know my heart broke because my own mom she is I have my own my own history with my own mom passing away at a I was a young adult but this is a child under the age of 18 and being impacted by this and having siblings who are impacted by this within that same age range. And uh, we just emailed back and forth. He's like, I didn't know who else to tell. And I immediately, you know, sent an email out to my admin and I looked up all of his other teachers, letting them know you need to keep this kid on your radar with Mm -hmm. what he's going through. And then he shared with me, you know, when her service was going to be. And I said, okay, I'll be there. And he's like, oh, you don't have to. I go, I know, but I will. And sure enough, I was there at her memorial and uh, he was at the door. And of course, when, because we're in school, we we have face masks that cover <laughs> up mm-hmm. to our nose. So I only know this kid from eyeballs and hair <laughs> up <laughs> and but he's at the at the front desk when I walked in and we made eye contact and I just I nodded an acknowledgement to him I'm yeah. telling you that impacted that kid to see you there oh absolutely yeah I, I signed the guest book and and I stayed there for not the duration but um for a good portion, my my own family started texting me, going needing me, so I had to pull away. But that next day, or that the following week, he showed up to school, and he after class got out, he's like, "So I think I saw you at my mom's service." I go, and I just smiled. I go, "I think you did too." And he's like, "I recognized your face from watching you know, your instructional videos." But seeing you in person, it was it was a different experience. I go, I I know. <laughs> we just kind of had a <laughs> chuckle about that. Right. But that was a relationship that I know that is going to make that long lasting impact where he's sure. got a safe person to fall back on when he has trouble. And yeah. So, and that's that human connection that we need to make with our students. Yeah. And that I tried to make with the inmates, you know, that that I work with. And it just goes a long way for them to see the potential in themselves. If somebody cares about you, you want to please that person and and make them happy as well. And so by just making those human connections, you probably made an impact on that kid that's going to affect him. And he's going to want to make you happy as a student. And so you're going to see better results. And all because you were empathetic to, to what happened. And that's just a heartwarming story. So even though the part that led to it is sad that that you're able to connect with that kid and so and again I think that's where in family consumer sciences we thrive that human connection it goes a long ways yes it does well Mr. Roberts Dr. Robertson sorry let's end on this high note of FCS storytelling it goes a long ways and the fact that we need to yes we need to fill that teacher pipeline, the FCS teacher pipeline, but let's find ways to give back to the community and through the incarcerations and bringing our FCS curriculum and our teaching methods 
to better the lives of a different student population. The al- an alternative student population that people don't often think about. Exactly. And, and they're out there and not and not just in male facilities and adult facilities, but in juvenile facilities. You know, they need that instruction there as well. And it's difficult to fill those teaching positions as well in the juvenile facilities because they have to have full blown high school programs. And we can definitely look in that direction as well. Well, this was such a fantastic conversation. So if people wanted to get in touch with you to find out and get more information from you about the prison system or possibly they, they're looking at a doctoral program, how could they get oh, well, We would love to recruit for that too. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you can catch me at Kyle, K-Y-L-E dot Robertson, R-O-B-E-R-S-O-N at gtu.edu. So I'll be happy to take any emails and point in the right direction or or send you information about our doctoral or master's or undergraduate positions, you know, that we have at Texas Tech. So we have it all there. Perfect. And do you have any shout outs that you would like to give? I have to shout out to the FCS educators that are out there. I think I said this at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, Like I said, I follow a couple 300 on Twitter and the things I've seen on there are just phenomenal. And my shout out is to all those teachers out there through this COVID year. And even the years that we don't have COVID, they just do a fantastic job. I think we just graduated 16 FCS teachers this semester. And so we're super happy about that. And they're going to go make a difference. But every FCS teacher out there, I think, is making a difference in the lives of their students. And so my shout out is to all of them. And just keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Robertson. I loved having this conversation with you. And always don't forget to smash that subscribe button. I want to hear from you. So please hook up with me on any of the podcast platforms that you listen to. You can find us on all of your streaming devices. Thank you for joining the conversation today. Each episode on the Connect FCS Ed podcast We boldly celebrate families and careers by providing inspiration, support, and resources for teachers, students, and families everywhere. If you could do me a quick favor, please leave me a five-star review on iTunes. My mission is to get this out in front of as many people as possible to help educate and inform the community that home economics is alive and well. Thanks again for spending your time with me today, and be sure to visit fcspodcast.com for past episodes and resources to help spread the word that family and consumer sciences is today's home economics.